Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And like I keep on saying every week, I gotta I gotta really change that up. But it just kind of flows off the tongue because I've been doing it for so long. So I'll, I'll see if I can uh, find another mission statement for, for me. Uh, although I, I don't want to forget where I came from anyway. I'm just kind of rambling at this point. It's not even a minute long. I'm already rambling. It's off to a, off to a great start. Anyway, hey guys, welcome back to the Stephen King cast. Um... Long-time listeners, you know that it started off as one-man mission, uh, one-man mission to, to go through each of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication, mission accomplished. Uh, and new listeners, if, if this happens to be your first episode, I'm currently on a review of Netflix's Stranger Things uh, because I have finished the, the Stephen King reread. I thought that it was appropriate to dive into Stranger Things due to the... the the inspiration of Stephen King upon the imagination of the Duffer Brothers and the construction of Netflix's what I consider to be a masterpiece. So uh, I will get to Stranger Things episode 5 in this particular episode and I'll, I'll do a deep dive and talk uh, about that. But in the meantime, there's some stuff that I, I, I want to plug for myself. I want to listen to or I want to share a listener email. So the first thing is, as you know, um, or as you may know, as you may not know, I have been fortunate enough to I have some of my own short stories published this past year. So it's it's crazy because at this time last year, I had in my life zero short stories published. And one year later, I now have had six published, which is just an, it's just awesome. It's a great feeling and uh, a fantastic motivator. So for those of you who are interested to see how well I fare in the realm of, of the, the horror genre, I have some options for you. So the first is... Um, in the pages of Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22, the short story is entitled Room 207. And I think that you'll all enjoy it. It's a, um, you know, it kind of has an EC Comics sort of feel. It's about a, a husband who's traveling down south uh, to, to, to meet up with his wife, and he happens to stop in at the wrong motel. And he stays in the room next door to room 207. The big question is, what's up with room 207? Well, read it and find out. Next up, we have uh, in the pages of Nine Tales Told in the Dark, issue 9. The short story is titled, This World Will Eat You All the Way Up. And it's the story of two longtime best friends, college buddies, who have hit the road together on a, on a road trip. And the... Uh, the, the pressures of the road uh, start to bring out long dormant secrets that one of the the uh, the, the the friends might be having uh, and might have and what happens when the secrets come bubbling up to the surface well spoiler alert this world will eat you all the way up up next we have in the anthology wax and Wayne a gathering of witch tales the the short story hopscotch in which a 13 and witch haha in which a 13 year old girl, uh, runs afoul of a much darker and much more evil uh, figure than any 13-year-old can be, even though 13-year-olds can be very, very cruel. Uh, this one discovers that there are much more crueler things in this world and is punished for her cruelty. Up next, uh, we have Forget-Me-Not in the Trists of Fate publication, and, and my copy just arrived uh, in the mail the other day. It's a great looking book, guys. I strongly recommend that you go out and get it. This is a, uh, these are these are kind of like love stories, um, darker love stories, uh, 
plays on love stories, and and my my short story here, Forget Me Not, is uh, is an examination of a relationship and what happens to identity in relationship. It's more of a uh, existential sense of horror. Um, so that that's one that's available now. Um, up next, we have the portrait from uh, Skeptics Must Die publication from Disquieted Dreams Press. And the portrait is uh, the story of two kind of bumbling ghost hunters that are trying to get famous through reality television, exploring, uh, you know, local legends and haunts. And they, they, they go to one mansion where there is rumored to be a haunted portrait. So read to see what happens. And uh, just this past week, my short story, Spouse Swap, has been picked up for Inkstain's anthology, and Spouse Swap uh, is is one of those stories that I, I have been very very proud of. I, I wrote it quite some time ago, years ago, and uh, it's 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 about reality television and the unreality of reality television. And you know, I mean, I wrote it before the uh, the. Um, the, the, the lifetime television show Unreal, but it uh, it does explore what is real and what is not real in, in the world of, of reality television, and it's through a horror bent. So I, I think that everyone will enjoy it. I, I really enjoyed uh, rereading that, so keep your eyes open for the Ink Stains anthology, which will include Spouse Swap. Okay, guys, so with that out of the way, I also want to plug my guest appearance on the Stephen King podcast, uh, which the episode just came out this past week, and uh, it was such a fun time recording with Lou and Hans, the, the guys over there, and, and like I've said in my previous episode, Hans uh, has been running the Lilia's Library, the, the, the resource for, for Stephen King news for, for years now, so to be able to actually converse with him was a was a fantastic treat. So it was just a blast talking to these two guys and geeking out about Stephen King. So uh, if if you kind of if if you finish this episode and you're all caught up and you, you want to hear more of my thoughts, then head on over to Stephen King podcast. And guys, if you're not subscribing to the Stephen King podcast, you, you definitely should because these guys are the real deal, and uh, you should be supporting them as well. So. Up next, we have a listener email, and this comes from Gabe. So, um, guys, just from this point forward, please note that there may be spoilers for anything having to do with Stephen King. So if you are not a Stephen King diehard fanatic, uh, just just be be warned that at this point in the, the podcast publication uh, going forward, it's just kind of all spoilers all the time. So the emails might reflect that. So Gabe writes, I last wrote you a little over a week ago to tell you I had only heard one of your episodes and wanted to share my It and Dark Tower blogs with you. In the weeks since, I have binge listened to so much of your podcast, specifically your episodes on the stand It, Under the Dome, and every single Dark Tower one. I am currently rereading 1122.63, and you will be my go-to analysis as soon as I finished. I am truly amazed by the level of dedication and commitment that you have shown to create such an enjoyable and rewarding podcast. It has been great to listen to your evolving opinions on the nature of Flag Walter and your ongoing discussions on the controversial Beverly Marsh scene and even your theory on Franny Goldsmith being the mother of the Crimson King. Okay, uh, I, I have to say it again. Uh, I, I probably should just go back into that episode and, and remove it. Uh, so 
I, I made the mistake of kind of just riffing at one point during my stand review. At this point, I had just been plowing through my reviews of Stephen King, and I was feeling a little burnt out, so I just kind of wanted to have a little fun. And during my review of The Stand, I... At one point, Franny goes to Dairy Queen to talk to her, the father of her child, and I, I just, I, I was just joking, and I made a joke that uh, Franny's child will grow up to be, be the Crimson King. No, no, it, it's not true. I wasn't being serious. Um, please, everyone, please understand that that was me just being kind of an ass. Um, not to be taken seriously. So anyway, uh, Gabe continues, you have made me realize something I have never had before. SK has often been criticized for his endings with many often feeling let down. But in your podcast, you have really made me realize how a common motif in his writing is to subvert readers' expectations. Hence, this is why the stand does not end with a battle, but with a stand. Why Under the Dome is not really about the extraterrestrials, but about politics. And why Mordred and the Crimson King turned out the way they did. These story choices may initially be jarring and frustrate readers, but they are also exactly what end up making these stories resonant and why we still are talking about them today. Perhaps the reason that Eyes of the Dragon has not held up as well is because it's one Stephen King tale that is a very traditional story with a happy ending that ties everything up neatly. I also wanted to say how much I enjoy the amount of excerpts from each book that you include and the way that you do the character voices. You are just a, just as good an audiobook reader as the late Frank Mueller, and your voices always bring a sense of storytelling and personality to your podcast. Um, in particular, your voice for Shimi made me laugh out loud for several minutes straight. Um, thank you, Gabe. I, I have not listened to the Frank Mueller uh uh, audiobooks, although I have heard that they are, that when people think of a good audiobook, that's what they think of. So to hear that, that that's incredible praise. Or as Andy Samberg, as Nicolas Cage would say, that's high praise. Um, but yeah, the, thank you, thank you. And and the Shimi, the Shimi one is, I still can't believe that Shimi is an actual character. Um, as I said before, he's just basically Simple Jack. Anyway, so Gabe continues, I had a question for you. In your Dark Tower 7 review, you made reference to Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which really made me smile. Perhaps you've mentioned it in other episodes I haven't heard yet, but what are your thoughts on the similarities between King and Gaiman? Would you do an episode comparing and contrasting these two writers? I feel there's always been a bit of a crossover between the two fan bases, with King being viewed as primarily a horror writer who sometimes writes fantasy, while Gaiman is viewed primarily as a fantasy writer who sometimes writes horror. Both men love stories about stories and stories within stories, and I would argue that all ten volumes of The Sandman are comparable to the seven volumes of The Dark Tower as an epic magnum opus. I would love to hear you compare Roland with Dream, two protagonists who are humorless and often cruel. I realize your podcast is called the Stephen King Cast, but if you were maybe to do a side series where you reviewed The Sandman with the same level of insight and analysis that you have given every SK book, that would really be a treat. Uh, so about The Sandman, it, yes, it's Neil Gaiman is phenomenal, uh, an incredible writer, and I'm very, very excited for American Gods to be hitting um, television screens very, very shortly. Uh, I, I think that that is going to be great for a number of reasons. One, uh, it is 
not as popular a book as I think that it should be. I think that the exploration of what we are within our culture is very, very important. And I just love the idea of these new gods springing up and replacing the old ones. And so that, that's a great, great book. Looking forward to seeing what Brian Fuller brings to it. And longtime listeners will know that I'm a big fan of Hannibal. So I, I love how Brian Fuller takes already existing properties and kind of, I think that he's admitted that he does fan fiction, but that's how it feels in a good way. Uh, but in, in regards to Sandman, I... I don't know if I could do a Sandman podcast or a, a sort of retrospective look. Clearly, I need to go back and reread all of the the volumes of Sandman. But in the in the early two thousands was when I was when I went through my my sand, I don't want to call it phase, but that's when I really explored Sandman, and it was never as uh, a consistent read or consistent obsession or interest of mine the way that the Dark Tower was. So I don't have as much thought on it um, or thought to generate on it other than it is a phenomenal read. It's a beautiful book with profound insight. There, there's one particular scene that, that sticks with me all the time It's and it's Neil Gaiman's treatise on, on, on death and it's just a, a beat, just a little throwaway moment in which one character who is is dying? He's gonna die, and he is you know is um, met by by death, who who comes for him, and he says it's not fair. I didn't have enough time, and she says you had the same amount of time that everyone else had, a lifetime, and there's just su such simple beauty in that that, and you know, here we go, gonna get a little morbid, but I I hope that. When my time comes, many, many, many years from now, that those words will will reassure me, um, because I think, like I said, there there's such beauty in that. But uh, but just in general, uh, you know, one thing that that Neil Gaiman did that was so good was, you know, how Stephen King he he brings the the horror to the everyday uh, or the, the the larger than life supernatural aspects to the everyday and. Uh, you know, Neil Gaiman is very much the opposite. He he personalizes and personifies the, these large, uh, abstract concepts and and brings the everyday to that. So I, I think that that's a nice a nice balance between the two authors. But they're they're both incredible, uh, both incredible. And and those of you who have not read uh, Sandman, please do because it's it's a well constructed series with a lot of mysteries and. You'll get a lot out of doing some some rereads. You'll start to pick up some some subtleties and some references that you did not pick up the first time around. So, um, strongly, strongly recommend it. And Gabe continues. There's a lot more I'd love to ask, constant reader, but the email is getting long, and I don't want to overwhelm you. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to your thoughts as the new Dark Tower movie approaches. Gabe, thank you for writing in. Um, yeah, I I. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait for the Dark Tower movie, as I mentioned uh, with Hans and Lou on over at the Stephen King podcast. The end of October at the EW Pop Fest, they're going to be showing the first footage, probably a trailer of the, the Dark Tower movie, and I cannot wait to see what that looks like. I don't know. I don't know. I if it's a if it's a teaser trailer or, or the trailer trailer. Uh, I, 
I don't know how they're going to, I don't know, I'm so excited. You know, are they going to, you know, say the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed? Are they going to have classic, you know, images? Are they, are we going to actually see, are we going to see the dark tower? Like just to actually see the image of the dark tower on, you know, in a movie, in a trailer, that's going to blow my mind. Or like, or just like little things. Like, what if we just see a rose? What if we just see Jake looking at a rose or... Jake crossing the street with the knowledge that, you know, in the books he gets hit by a car or, you know, all Joel Ciento. Are we going to see that? Are we going to see the low men? Are we going to see the Dixie pig? You know, and how is, what is the first shot of Roland the gunslinger going to look like? These are, these are questions that, that keep me up at night, guys. So I can't wait. It is now, I'm recording this. It is September 2nd and wait, what day is it? Yeah, it's September 2nd. So um, we are almost there. We are one day closer to that that first bit of footage. I cannot wait. But with the movie being in February, February 17th, if the first trailer is dropping in, at the end of October, then we're only really looking at November, December, and January for, um, you know, for, for marketing after the, the first trailer comes out. So maybe we'll get two. But it, it's just such a quick turnaround between the end of filming and the, the movie's release. And not just that, it was just a quick turnaround between the big announcement, which came in April, to the the movie's release. So just, you know, un, under a year, that that's pretty incredible. Uh, but we'll find out together, and I'll, I'll continue to share my thoughts every time there's a new uh, Dark Tower uh, news story that, that hits, the, hits the interwebs. Okay, so now it's time for Stranger Things Episode 5. I'll talk about, but before that... Let's talk a little bit about that awesome news that came uh, from Netflix the other day. Netflix officially announced uh, that Stranger Things Season 2 is happening. And, of course, Stranger Things Season 2 was happening. I mean, it was never a question that it wasn't going to happen. But uh, but Netflix made it official, and they released the what we what everyone assumes are the, the chapter titles of the next batch of episodes. There's going to be nine episodes, and... The chapter titles are are very exciting. So I'm not going to get into it right now, but I would strongly recommend everyone go watch it. Um, watch just a little promo, and it's great. It's it's the music, it's the intro music, it's the lettering, except it's not spelling Stranger Things. It's spelling out season two, uh, and it, it it's flashing the, the chapter titles, and it's really, really cool. So I can't wait, guys. I cannot wait. Uh, so anyway... Going to Stranger Things Episode 5, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary that Wikipedia has for it. It's a short, short little summary, and then I'll get into my review. Will's father, Lonnie, assures Joyce that her experiences are hallucinations. She discovers her plans to sue the quarry where... She discovers his plans to sue the quarry where Will's body was found and demands that he leave. The boys conclude that Will is trapped in an alternate dimension of death and decay, which L calls the Upside Down. After Will's funeral, the boys ask Mr. Clark about dimensions, quoting the Many Worlds interpretation of Hugh Everett III. He, notices, he tells them that a space-time tear could create a passage between dimensions. Dustin notes that his compass no longer points north, positing that an interdimensional passage would disrupt the electromagnetic field, throwing off compasses, the boys following the compasses to find the source of the disruption. L remembers being placed in a sensory deprivation tank to telekinetically intercept information from a Russian spy. While listening to the spy, she comes across the creature. Scared of finding the gate, L directs the compasses away from the laboratory. 
When Lucas notices the distortion, he confronts her. Mike defends her, and he and Lucas fight. Elle telekinetically flings Lucas off Mike, knocking Lucas unconscious. He recovers and runs away. Nancy and Jonathan decide to search for the creature in the woods and find a wounded deer, which the creature drags away. Following the blood trail, Nancy crawls through a passage in a tree to the other world and discovers the creature feasting upon the deer. The creature gives chase. Hearing her screams, Jonathan looks for her as the passage closes. Review. Again, we begin with a shot of the stars before panning down to Hawkins' lab as Hopper makes his way through it. I just have to say here, I love how easy it is for him to just break in. It isn't outrageously government-heavy. It actually feels like a real, you know, government facility. I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, not that I would really know. But regardless, Hopper gets to a door that needs a key card and is finally stopped and confronted by security. He tries to talk his way out of it, but finds more success by letting his fists do the talking. When we left things off with Joyce, she was reunited with Lonnie, her ex, and Will's father. A couple things here. Yes, it makes sense that the boy's father would be a part of the story, but he doesn't add anything. He provides a distraction for Joyce, enables her, and speaks to the doubts in her mind. I'll bet that next season that we see more of this character, but for now... I would say that his character drags the story down. In the lab, Hopper encounters Eleven's old room, adorned with a stuffed lion and a crayon drawing. The kids, meanwhile, attempt to decipher Will's message, and we get another Tolkien reference. We've had Mirkwood. In the last episode, Hopper revealed that a nearby town is called Rohan. And here, Dustin references the famous Riddles in the Dark passage from The Hobbit. It's here when the characters give name to the place where Will is, the Upside Down, a dark version of our world. The story keeps switching back and forth between the boys and Hopper's journey into the bowels of the lab as he searches for Will. They read from the Dungeons and Dragons manual, providing ominous narration for Hopper as he discovers the pulsing portal. It adds a heightened sense of danger, and we should be legitimately worried for our sheriff. He's gone so far beyond the quote-unquote real world that if he died in the lab, I wouldn't have been surprised. Thankfully for all of us, he's just knocked out by the scientists, and boom, credits roll. When we come back, everyone prepares for the funeral. Heartbreakingly, Will's dog makes his way to Castle Byers and lays down on his cot to mourn for his owner. At the funeral, the boys... The boys' knowledge that Will is still alive keeps the story from really drowning in misery. No funeral, by the way, will ever top Laura Palmer's funeral for Twin Peaks. From Bobby's impromptu eulogy to Leland's casket leap, that is one epic funereal experience that will never be topped. And for those of you who do not know what I'm talking about, shame on you. Twin Peaks is coming back, and you need to make sure that you go watch Twin Peaks. So going back to Gabe's email earlier, you know, Gabe made reference to if I were ever do a side um, podcast, it, it wouldn't be about Neil Gaiman. Um, the only other things that I really could talk about with the intensity of Stephen King, I could talk about uh, Grant Morrison, a comic book writer. I could talk about uh, Twin Peaks, or I could talk about Lost. Those are probably the, the, the things that I could talk about the, the most and actually have some, some insight and some thought on. So Hopper does not make it to the funeral because he mysteriously has been dropped back in his trailer. He tears the trailer apart, good scene, and eventually discovers where they've bugged the place. 
The Hawkins Lab checks their tapes and realizes that the boys have been able to communicate with Will using the AV equipment from school. Jonathan and Nancy continue their team up and decide to go monster hunting. At the reception, the boys need help from Mr. Clark. And I love how he thinks he's trying to help the boys through grief. They want to know about evil dimensions, and Clark gives the acrobat and the flea analogy. Their interactions, Mr. Clark and the boys, become a reoccurring joke throughout the show, and I love the kids interacting with this mentor figure. And I really hope we see more of Mr. Clark next season. You know, I mean, if we just kind of get him as continually as the comic relief, I'll be happy. If we get him pulled more into the story with him experiencing these things, I'll be happy. Either way, more Clark, be happy. Hopper's deputies show up to his trailer to report that more people have gone missing. He's sweaty, wild-eyed, gun-toting. He looks manic and about to snap at any moment. They let him know that Barbara's car has been found, unsurprisingly, by the state police. Lonnie starts to seed the idea of suing because he's under the impression that Will fell off the quarry's edge and died. Again, it makes sense for the character, and I get it. It's just that if I'm going to find any fault with the show, it's the inclusion of Lonnie, which just feels like padding. But because it's in service to the characters, I would say it is completely understandable. The kids, meanwhile, take Clark's knowledge, and Dustin quickly understands that because the compass isn't working, he realizes that if they use the compass, it will take them to the gate as it has disrupted the natural electromagnetic field. And I love that the kids are using science and being proactive about things. They aren't just heading into the world screaming at the top of their lungs like the Goonies. They're using their brains. Steve pays a visit to Nancy and tries to make amends. Nancy shows us, and Steve, that she still has feelings. She says that she's busy later, and Steve demonstrates his best Bob Seger impersonation. The thing about Steve is that he's too much of a dweeb to be the bad boy. It's what makes his face turn that much more realistic. Nancy and Jonathan meet up at uh, meet up to shoot at Cannes to prepare their monster hunting adventure. It cracks me up how easy it is for him to have gotten the gun, and the ease with which they have access to firearms is highlighted later on in a nice comic beat. The two talk about their parents, and what's most important here is that Nancy talking about her parents' loveless marriage. The story of her mother will be thrown back in her face by Jonathan later on when he uh, informs her and us that she's simply following in her mother's footsteps. So looking at Ted Wheeler, is this what Steve has to look forward to? And that's depressing. I do wish, however, that Jonathan didn't bring up the, the beat about her mother later on. I mean, Nancy talking about it here, that's enough. The audience can deduce that she is making the same mistakes as her mom and why she has so much resentment towards her. That's later. In the meantime, she channels her inner Beverly Marsh and demonstrates badass marksmanship skills. Hopper, mind fresh with the disappearance of Will and probably fear of impending death, calls his ex-wife, who heartbreakingly has moved on. A baby's cry is heard in the background, and especially coupled with the flashback scenes to their child's death in that final episode, it just makes this so much more tragic. The kids are on their way through the woods, following the compasses towards the gate, and walking along the railroad tracks in a stand-by-me moment. Lucas thinks that something's up with Elle and solidifies his distrust of her. Of course... Eleven knows where the compass is taking them and knows the part that she's played in Will's disappearance. 
I'm looking at you. Nope. Get back. Get back. Got a little toilet paper thief that's trying to get to some... Maybe. Maybe. Hey. No. No. I'm watching you. Okay. Sorry, everybody. Uh, we get another flashback to her time in the lab with our first glimpse of the sentry deprivation chamber. I haven't talked about the look of the lab yet or its equipment, but it's one of the more enjoyable aspects of the show for me. The uh, analog equipment, the, the, the blinking lights, how white everything is. It's just, it's a nice contrast. Uh, it's a nice throwback as well to the, the grays that we, that we would later see from evil organizations in later years. You know, I mean, later on, like, I just think of, like, 90s movies, and even nowadays, it's just, everything is just gray or it's silver right or black you know that just last shadows and i love these the these the the look of these organizations um and I'm, I'm thinking very much about the shop how everything is just being visible it's open it's the, the, these big old computers and blinking lights and i i just and there's a bureaucracy feel to it at, at all times and not necessarily like you know evil shadowy organizations i i just i like the look of the Hawkins lab. As Jonathan and Nancy traipse through the woods, they discuss the reason why he took her picture that night, and she delivers one of the show's best lines that completely shatters that John Hughes 80s teen movie that she's found herself in since the beginning of the show. So when he says that line that you know she was trying to be someone else, and in that moment, she could be alone and be herself, you know, he calls... You know, um, she calls him out by saying, ah, that's such bullshit. Like, ah, I loved it. She completely dismisses his sensitive guy angle and actually stands up for Steve. Knowing that Steve demonstrates probably the greatest act of heroism in the show in the final episode, no joke, I'm not joking, um, it, it's clear that she's not off base when she says this. It doesn't paint Jonathan in a terrible light, though, and he's clearly in the right when he says he understands why Steve what he did but that he doesn't have to like it. In this moment, he calls Nancy out on her rebellious streak, adding to the conflict um, as they hunt for the monster. And I think just the, it's a good scene between them. Um, and it's one that I really enjoyed. Hey, hey lady. Hopper heads to the buyer's house and begins his team up with Joyce as he has come to inform her of what he's learned. Oh, by the way, the toilet paper thief is, is not, um, not the baby, by the way. It's, it's the dog who is waiting patiently for me to turn my eye away from her so she can go um, get actually paper towels um, this time, not, not toilet paper, but she is biding her time. So Hopper heads to the buyer's house and begins his team up with Joyce as he has come to inform her of what he's learned. Once he sees the light bulbs everywhere, he knows that finding the bug will be difficult to say the least. And I just love the fact that these two are finally joining up. So right now we have had three different groupings of good guys. The kids, Nancy and Jonathan, and now Joyce and Hopper. And I can't wait for all of them to join forces under one great quartet. At an awesome looking junkyard, Lucas calls out Elle, knowing that she's acting stranger than usual. Because the compass is not taking them to where they think it should go, he rightfully realizes that somehow Elle is affecting the compass because he thinks that she doesn't want them to find Will. She has, in his mind, become a traitor. And oh god, poor Elle. Everywhere she goes, she's either being hunted, forced to kill things, or yelled at by her friends. 
Hopper reveals everything to Joyce, confirming that her suspicions are true. Having him tell her that all this time she's been right, it's such a great moment for the character. As their part of the quartet grows closer, the boys' quartet begins to fracture, with Lucas really laying into Mike. It gets really heated really quickly, and Dustin does what he can to calm everyone down, but to no effect. Mike has had enough of Lucas's accusations and jumps him. L, trying to save Mike, uses her powers to hurl Lucas off of him. Honestly, I'm glad that Lucas was put in this place, because uh, he's actually been driving me nuts. But still, when Mike starts yelling at L, oh God, it just breaks my heart. In a flashback, we get a look at L using her powers to spy on a Russian something or other. It's a pure black space with a watery floor. It's a great look, very haunting, and from what I understand, from what I've read and heard, it's similar or exact to Scarlett Johansson's uh, extra-dimensional world in Under the Skin, a movie that I, I really want to see, still haven't seen it. While Elle approaches the approximation of the man, she hears something in the dark. It's the monster, and we now begin asking some questions. Where exactly is Elle? Where has her mind gone? Is she opening a door? To me, it seems as if she's traveling through what Stephen King had labeled Todash space. Another question is, how is the monster there? Because this space does not seem to be the upside down. Is the monster from this black mind space? Does it too travel to this space wherever it comes from? I should state that I don't believe that the monster is originally from the upside down. In an interview with the Duffer Brothers, or one of the producers, I don't remember, someone said something along the lines of exploring where the monster had come from because, as you'll notice, there's only one monster in the Upside Down. I feel as though somehow Elle pulled it from wherever it had been. Anyway, Elle mentally escapes the approaching monster while in the present Lucas comes to after having been knocked out by Elle. The ensuing fight and accusations of the group has caused Elle to bolt, and I can understand why. She's come to understand that she's a burden on her new family, causing friction among the friends and functions as a potential fatal danger to them. Night has fallen, and Nancy and Jonathan discover a dying deer that is quickly dragged into the upside down by the monster. Nancy, being a badass, chases after it. I love the fact that the doorway to the upside down in this moment is a tree. It's such a fairy tale visual. The two children in the dark wood find a doorway in a tree. And it's here where we get our longest look at the upside down and our first real look at the monster, who has a great looking flower face. It's a great design, by the way. Very distinct, humanoid, but entirely alien. And rightfully so, at the perfect beat, cut to credits, end of the episode. So that's all I got for this week, guys. Just under 40 minutes. Um, but right now, it's a... Uh, recording this on a long weekend so i'm gonna try and record a couple other episodes and get them out um because i need to start to uh get back into reading jonathan madbury's pine deep trilogy because i made the announcement that i would be reviewing those books during the month of october and with it being september 1st um and life being pretty busy lately i gotta get on that i've I reviewed the or i've I've read the first book, I have my notes ready to record, um, but I, and I've just begun my reread of, of Dead Man's Song, uh, so I gotta get through that, and then Bad Moon Rising. So I wanna make sure that I stay true to my promise, so I gotta start, um, so I gotta start really busting these out. 
Uh, so if you have not done so already, feel free to, to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And uh, there's a couple new iTunes reviews, so thank you guys for, for leaving those retu- uh, reviews on iTunes. And if you haven't done so, head on over there, guys. Um, please leave a, a review because it would really help out the podcast and make it visible um, on searches for Stephen King and, and whatnot. And uh, other than that, guys, uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.